Pursuant to the 20th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, for the meeting of the 116th Congress of the United States, the House will come to order. Madam Clerk, the Speaker-elect, Nancy Pelosi of the State of California. And to the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, I extend to you this gavel. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon, on KYAQ Central Coast, Queso Cottage Grove, and KEPW Eugene, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, in Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Red Bluff, Redding, California, KFOI, Round Mountain, California, KKRN, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and... Coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but you have me. I'm Angie Cuero. I host In Deep with Angie Cuero which many of you hear on these fine stations and streams. Most signs of disharmony put to bed, the Democrats and even some Republicans gave a rousing welcome to the new Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi. In a nice, orderly way, the old House session gaveled itself out of existence, the new one came in, and after a couple of speeches, okay, hang on, let's linger for a moment on the nomination speech for the other guy, Congressman Kevin McCarthy, delivered by Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who managed to sound faint echoes of Daddy Dearest Dick, a.k.a. Mr. Potter. She warned all of us about the rotten fruits awaiting any liberal votes. Madam Clerk, because he will lead us in fighting for all the people of this great nation from all walks of life, because he will stand against the fraud of socialism, which strips power from the people and gives it to the government, because he knows that the most important words of our founding document are the very first words, we the people. As chair of the House Republican Conference, I am honored and directed by the vote of that conference to present for election to the office of the Speaker of the House of Representatives for the 116th Congress, the name of the Honorable Kevin McCarthy. Socialism. But she pulled out the biggest gun to reassure the Dominionists, armed evangelicals, and those fervently praying for the rapture exactly who is on their side. Leader McCarthy knows our rights come from God. See, I find that scary. That's me. I find that scary. And who's God she's talking about? She left that out. I guess she assumed it was self-explanatory. Stunningly, 
She managed to sway exactly zero votes her way, and Pelosi took the speaker chair as expected. Nancy Pelosi's address as new speaker really did hit every note, and I've pulled the bulk of it for you here, okay? So settle back and listen in. We enter this new Congress with a sense of great hope and confidence for the future and deep humility and prayerfulness in the face of challenges ahead. Our nation is at an historic moment. Two months ago, the American people spoke and demanded a new dawn. They called upon the beauty of our Constitution, our system of checks and balances that protects our democracy. Remembering that the legislative branch is Article One, the first branch of government, co-equal to the presidency and to the judiciary. They want a Congress that delivers results for the people, opening up opportunity and lifting up their lives. We're hearing the voice of the future there. How beautiful. <laughs> When our new members take the oath, our Congress will be refreshed and our democracy will be strengthened by their optimism, idealism, and patriotism of this transformative freshman class. Congratulations to all of you in the freshman class. Working together, we will redeem the promise of the American dream for every family advancing progress for every community. We must be pioneers of the future. This Congress must accelerate a future that advances America's preeminence in the world and opens up opportunities for all. Building an economy that gives all Americans the tools they need to succeed in the 21st century. Public education, workforce development, good paying jobs, and secure pensions. We have heard from too many families who wonder in this time of innovation and globalization if they have a place in the economy of the future. We must remove all doubt that they do and say to them individually, we will have an economy that works for you. Let us declare that we will call upon bold thinking to address the disparity of income in America which is at the root of the crisis of confidence felt by so many Americans. As Justice Brandeis said, we may have democracy or we may have wealth concentrated in the hands of the few, but we cannot have both. We must end that injustice and restore the public's faith in a better future for themselves and their children. We must be champions of the middle class and all those who aspire to it because the middle class is the backbone of our democracy. It has been since the birth. It has been since the birth of our democracy. Aristotle said, it is manifest that the best political community is formed by citizens of the middle class, in which the middle class is large and stronger than any of the other classes. We must fight for the middle class that is fair and fiscally sound protecting Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. 
We must also face the existential threat of our time, the climate crisis, a crisis manifested in natural disasters of epic proportions. The American people understand the urgency. The people are ahead of the Congress. The Congress must join them. And that is why we have created a select committee on climate crisis. The entire Congress must work to put an end to the inaction and denial of science that threaten the planet and the future. This This is a, this is a, de a decision, it's a, deci a public health decision about clean air, clean water for our children's health. It's a decision for America's global preeminence in the green technologies. It is a, a decision, a security decision to keep us all safe and a moral decision to be good stewards of God's creation. We have no illusions that our work will be easy and that all of us in this chamber will always agree. But let each of us pledge that when we disagree, we respect each other and we respect the truth. We will debate and advance good ideas no matter where they come from. And in that spirit, Democrats will be offering the Senate Republican Appropriations legislation to reopen government later today. We'll do so to meet the needs of the American people, to protect our borders, and to respect our workers. And I pledge that this Congress will be transparent, bipartisan, and unifying, that we will seek to reach across the aisle in this chamber and across divisions across our nation. In the past two years, the American people have spoken. Tens of thousands of public events were held. Hundreds of thousands of people turned out. Millions of calls were made. Countless families, even sick little children, our little lobbyists, our little lobbyists bravely came forward to tell their stories and they made a big difference. Now the floor of this house will be Amer must be America's town hall where people will see our debates and where their voices will be heard and affect our decisions. Transparency will be the order of the day. I think that was good stuff, but I'm going to take issue with one little bit here, and I would do this too if it were a conservative pulling this same kind of trick. Discussing immigration, she urged that we welcome newcomers. And we will make America more American by passing our, by protecting our patriotic, courageous dreamers. All three, all three of, that, of those legislative initiatives have bipartisan support in this body. And when we're talking about the Dreamers, let us remember what President Reagan said in his last speech as President of the United States. I, I urge you all to read it. It's a beautiful speech. 
He said, if we ever close the door to new Americans, our leadership role in the world will soon be lost. Ronald Reagan. Our common cause, your applause for Ronald Reagan. <laughs> our common cause is to find and forge a way forward for our country. Let us stand for the people to promote liberty and justice for all as we pledge every day. And always, always keep our nation safe from threats old and new, from terrorism and cyber warfare overseas and here at home to protect and defend. That is the oath we all take to serve in this body. That is the oath we take to protect and defend. But that is not the issue. That's not the point of contention. The GOPers don't have a problem with all newcomers, just the poor non-white ones, the ones that they can demonize as gang members and murderers and drug dealers, despite the studies that indicate immigrants are less likely to commit crimes than native-born people because they can't afford to draw attention of law enforcement. So it's not all newcomers. I would have liked, even on this day that is traditionally for making nice, some acknowledgement, some transparency of the real issue here, because she called for transparency in her speech. This is about racism married to classism. I don't like disingenuousness or logical fallacies from anybody, and that was a logical fallacy. Nobody is arguing with all newcomers coming to the U.S. But that aside, she really did hit it all, didn't she? She got in diversity, border security, careful to distinguish that from keeping everyone out on the southern border. National security as a whole, kids and health care. Well, you heard it. I think she did really well. I did enjoy it. This is snark. This is snark, but it's relevant snark. The reactions caught by the C-SPAN cameras on the Republican side of the aisle as the Democrats were applauding. Some of them smirked. Some of them pouted. Some stared blankly, and to their credit, nobody shouted, you lie, so I guess they're getting better. My favorite guy, and I'm sorry, I wasn't clear on who exactly this is. I didn't recognize him, but he just sat there and stared into himself like he was watching the life slowly drain away. There was just something so honest about that reaction. I appreciated it. Also, by the way, this is completely tangential. I really appreciate the C-SPAN camera people. They had a lot to fill while things were not happening. And some of the stuff they caught of the kids in there was just adorable. They were cute kids doing cute things, and the camera would just linger while we were waiting for something else to happen. They did a great job. There is other news today, and once again, we're going to focus on Nancy Pelosi for some of it. She had had part of her um, interview that came out with the Today Show came out yesterday, and more of it came out the morning of her speaker gavel taking. <laughs> she had that exclusive interview with today's Savannah Guthrie. And long story short, she says she is not ruling out indictment or impeachment for Donald Trump. She's not ruling them out. And she said that the guidance that she has isn't conclusive so far. And to quote her, she said, I think it's an open discussion. I think this is an open discussion in terms of the law. Of course, Mueller's been investigating Russian interference and whether the government worked to help Trump win the White House, today notes. 
She said we'll have to wait and see what happens with the report. We shouldn't be impeaching for a political reason. We shouldn't avoid impeachment for a political reason. We'll just have to see how it comes. Now, this is the same interview. It's just being released in pieces where she said nothing for the wall. Nothing for the wall. I hope they stick to that. I think they're going to stick to that. I do. This is kind of a grim development in Russia. Paul Wellen, the ex-U.S. Marine who's been held in Moscow, has now been charged with spying. He's looking at 20 years if he gets convicted on this. This is covered by TheGuardian.com. Here's a bit of their story. The former U.S. Marine has been charged with spying, faces 20 years, according to the Interfax News Agency. He's the head of global security for a Michigan-based car parts supplier, and he's being held in a detention facility of former KGB prison in the Russian capital. His lawyer declined to comment on the charges, but said under the terms of the arrest order, Whelan was expected to remain in custody in Moscow until at least February 28th. Now, his lawyer says his detention and arrest are baseless. He is asking for bail. Thursday, a Russian news outlet claimed Whelan was arrested just minutes after receiving a USB drive that contained the names of people employed at a top secret state organization. All of that, there's a lot more to the story. That's at theguardian.com. Some more stuff we're looking at in the future with the job gains and housing prices, housing availability, that ain't looking good because we're still, of course, in the process of making ourselves great again. This comes in courtesy of Bloomberg. As the U.S. wraps up a year of surprisingly strong job growth, such gains are unlikely to repeat in the next 12 months with economic headwinds intensifying for the country and the rest of the world. The final report for 2018 is forecast to show employers added 180,000 jobs in December to cap a 2.45 million annual increase. That's the most since 2015, but the monthly estimate is the lowest median projection since last January. They expect this to slow down through at least the first quarter of 2019 goes on to say the prospect of less robust job growth is the latest in a series of risks stacking up for the world's largest economy, even as it heads for its longest expansion on records. It comes alongside warnings from housing to manufacturing, projected weakening both U.S. and global growth this year. A waning boost from Trump's tax cuts and government spending will add to the challenges for policymakers. That's via Bloomberg. Bernie Sanders has apologized to any women who felt he was mistreated during the 2016 campaign. Multiple outlets have this. Essentially, he's saying he was kind of busy running for office, but he did think that they had stopgaps in place for people to be able to arrest such behavior and to be able to deal with it. It sounds like part of positing himself for another run, if in fact that happens. And finally, Apple's taken it in the shorts this week. Here's more. This from CNET.com. Apple suspends some iPhone sales in Germany as Qualcomm ponies up. Apple will reportedly stop selling older models of the phone at its German retail stores after losing a court battle. This record of Munich found that Apple infringed Qualcomm's technology for power savings in smartphones and ruled the iPhone maker must halt sales of the device in Germany. Apple plans to appeal. They're just not having the best week. Not having the best week. Let's take a little bit of a break here. Coming up next on the broadcast, all those new faces that we saw coming in today into the Congress, 
they're in part a product of what they've been reading all their lives, and that includes what they've read as children. But the face of children's books is changing. So next, we're going to check in with the author of Blog Post. This blog post was written last summer about what's being read and what's seen as the important things to read. And we're going to check with her to see what, if anything, has changed in the meantime. So stay tuned for that. This is the broadcast. Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. Listen to the Bradcast. I'm Angie Coyle, in for Brad and Desi. They're headed back from their holiday, by the way. They let me know this morning. And if you want to head over to the Brad Blog's main page, they have posted a holiday message for you right on top of the page. It's good. It's nice. And it tells you what's coming up for the next year. So check that out at bradblog.com. You know, one of the most striking, beautiful things on the floor of Congress today was that for the first time, it's starting to look like America. The people taking power are so varied. A congresswoman in a hijab, two Native American women taking office. Well, women, women everywhere. Yay, we are making progress. But that brought to mind for me something about how we form as people. And for many of us, it's a matter of what we read. And that in turn brings my attention to a post from October, which is still worth discussing. This was on the blog of Lee and Lowe Publishers, leeandlowe.com, The Whiteness of PBS's Great American Read. And to talk about that, I'm bringing on Hannah Ehrlich, who is with Lee and Lowe handling their marketing and publicity and the author of the blog post. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Angie. Thanks for having me. I think the thing that struck me about what you published in the post you didn't take the easy route and say, wow, PBS ought to do better. Shame on them. That wasn't it. They had the Great American Read, and that was a poll to determine America's favorite novel. So this is a taking of the pulse, and, and as anybody who follows these things knows, it's self-determining in that these are the people who watch PBS and the subset of those who were aware of the poll. Even taking those factors into account, it is a surprisingly white list, and there are things that you'd almost guess would be on that list. Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. um, the things that you could have said, well, here's what would probably show up in a top 100 books list. You noticed that it was so white, but you also noticed that this is not a problem of PBS per se. So where does the problem lie? I would say the problem really goes back to what we're all expected to read as Americans, um, what we read in school as kids, what books we have that nostalgic connection to. Um, I really didn't want to blame PBS because I think the whiteness of this list is a symptom of the larger, you know, Western literary canon and how white that is. Because if you look at the books that are on this list, a lot of them tend to be the books that everyone is required to read. That's how they get enough votes to be on this list. Either they're books that everyone was required to read as a kid or they're books that got such a huge marketing push that they got grand exposure across our entire country for many, many years. And uh, those books, by and large, tend to be by white authors and about white characters. I think one of the failed or, or faulty messages we can take away from this is that, well, readers are white people. <laughs> That's obviously mm -hmm. not the case. But the availability of non-white and diverse authors isn't necessarily consistent across the states and across the different regions of the country. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, I do think the last couple of years have been sort of a blossoming of more books by diverse voices and those books getting a larger marketing budget. So they're able to get out in front of more readers. Um, But that is a very new development in the publishing world. I would say only in the last three, maybe four years have we started to see things change. And before that, um, the books that were being published each year were mostly white. And then the books um, that were getting the huge marketing budget so that people could find them were also white. And if you also look at the people behind the scenes, the people at every sort of stage of that book process, from the writers to the editors to the booksellers and librarians and the, um, the educators who decide what goes in curriculum, um, all of those professions were and continue to be very, very white. So basically all of the gatekeepers in the literary world uh, continue to be, but historically for sure have been incredibly white. And that affects the books that we as readers are able to discover no matter what we're interested in or who we really want to be reading. I'm talking to Hannah Ehrlich. She's Director of Marketing and Publicity at Lee and Low Books, the largest children's book publisher in the U.S., focusing exclusively on diversity. I love their motto, about everyone, for everyone. Yeah, Hannah, a couple years back for my own show, I interviewed a person who was talking about diversity in children's books and young adult books, and one of the most insidious things I heard from her is that there's fear in marketing when you have a book, for example, that may have a black protagonist or may have a gay relationship mm-hmm. at the heart of it. It's the covers that try to get it cleaned up, that try to make it more generic, maybe more white or you know, play down mm-hmm. the fact that it's a gay relationship. Is that a situation that's improving? Yes, I would say that has really improved in the last couple of years. Uh, we've had some major bestsellers and award-winning titles in the children's and YA book world that are diverse titles. If you look at the success of a YA book like The Hate You Give or a children's book like Crown, um, those books are selling really, really well. And so I think publishers have realized hey, this is what America looks like. There is a market for these books. We don't have to hide it or whitewash it the way um, the way they have done in the past. And I think there's also a greater accountability where if uh, readers notice that a book has been whitewashed or that the diverse aspects have been kind of hidden, they will hold the publisher accountable. Um, and there's a there are economic repercussions of that. So I think things are getting better. What I would say is not getting better is that um, each diverse book is still kind of held up as a model, sort of like a test case of how well diverse books do. So if a diverse book does become a bestseller, that's great. But if it doesn't become a bestseller and there's a big marketing budget, the diversity, I think, is still sometimes blamed for that. Whereas when you have books uh, by white authors about white characters, you know, some will hit and some will flop. But the fact that the main character is white or the author is white is never really pointed out as a reason why the book didn't do well. But I don't think diverse books are are there yet where each book is kind of given a chance regardless of the um, the the racial or the um, the other aspects of diverse diversity that are in there. Yeah, that's, a, that's an idea for a, a, an independent film short is a little world where a white person publishes a book, it doesn't sell, and that's it. No, <laughs> We're not going to give a chance to any more white, right. white authors. <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. <laughs> now, let me ask, with, with Lee and Lowe having a deliberate focus on diverse authors and diverse books, do you see any pushback, either in general or per title, when something comes out that doesn't agree with what used to be mainstream thought? For sure. Um, I think we still get a lot of pushback. Um, I think it's interesting. I've been at Lee and Lowe for over 10 years now, and in the time I've been at Lee and Lowe, I have seen... I have seen the way the way that pushback is packaged has changed, but the pushback is still there. So there used to be, um, we work with a lot of schools and libraries, and we used to sometimes go into schools and they would say, oh, we don't need those books because we don't have those kids, meaning we don't need diverse books because all of our kids are white. Mm-hmm. Um, we still get pushback like that, but now it tends to be, I think, packaged a little differently because people are a little more self-aware that that might not go over well, but the the bias is still there. So now, instead of people saying, oh, we don't need those books, they will gravitate towards some of our diverse books that are, you know, lots of happy kids playing together, but they will push back against some of our diverse books that um, address more difficult topics like prejudice, racism, um, economic inequality, they will sort of say, well, I don't know if our kids are ready for that, or I don't know how we would handle those questions in the classroom. Um, So we get that sort of discomfort, Mm -hmm. um, which I think are kind of two sides of the same coin. So I think there's definitely that still there. And I would say the other area of diversity where there is still a lot of pushback is um, LGBTQ diversity in books. Um, There are a lot of especially, you know, curriculum coordinators or um, or other educators who maybe they want those books in their classroom, but they're afraid that parents might, um, parents might be upset. There are libraries that are afraid to put those books into their public libraries because they feel like the community might push back. Um, so there, there is still a lot of pushback on that front, especially in different geographic regions of the country. How do you how do you deal with the librarians? How do you approach them to say, look, if you keep being afraid, we're never going to get anywhere? Or what, what tack do you take to try to get the books into where they're going to get some pushback? Well, I mean, I would say the best thing that we can do as a publisher is try to arm the gatekeepers with all the resources they need to put up that fight. Um, I would say librarians are our biggest allies and in general, many of them, most of them, you know, they're so deeply against censorship that they will really go to bat for the books that they believe in. And so it's just a matter of kind of giving them, um, giving them whatever resources will help them. So, you know, we create teacher's guides uh, to support our books and, and display how they can be used in a teaching environment. Uh, When our books get, starred reviews or strong reviews or win awards, we make all that information available on our website because, um, you know, strong reviews from professional review journals can help make the argument for keeping a book in a collection. Um, So all of the things that we can do to sort of support the legitimacy of our books um, and then help the gatekeepers um, kind of take on those fights. And I would say, a lot of the time, you know, the gatekeepers really want those books in their collections. And so for them, it's just a matter of navigating their communities and mm-hmm. um, figuring out how best to make those arguments without potentially putting their own jobs at risk. I have to ask you before I let you go, has Lee and Lowe had the honor yet of getting a book onto the banned book list? 
<laughs> we haven't gotten it onto the top list of banned books that ALA puts out every year, but we have definitely gotten uh, a couple of our books here and there either, you know, taken out or we've had angry people writing into us. Um, yeah, that, that, that happens not infrequently, um, but we haven't, we haven't yet had the honor of like one of the top, top, top banned books. So we have a book um, coming out, a picture book coming out this spring about a transgender boy who's becoming a big brother. I'm really excited about it. It's called When Aiden Became a Brother, and it's beautiful. And um, there are very few books featuring transgender kids, uh, very few picture books featuring transgender kids right now. Mm -hmm. So I will be really interested to see um, how that book does in different parts of the country. But, you know, we stand behind it. We're ready to fight for it. So we'll see how it goes. Awesome. Hey, Hannah, thank you for your time, and thank you for that blog post. I know a couple months have gone back, gone on, gone by. I can't talk today. A couple months have gone by <laughs> since that was first posted, and I'm glad to bring some attention back to it. Thanks a lot. Uh, thank you, Angie. Hannah Ehrlich is Director of Marketing and Publicity for Lee and Low Books. In her speech today, Speaker Pelosi more than hinted that the health insurance issue is very, very much alive. Until things change one way or the other, we are still struck trying to deal with what is what is very high monthly payments for a lot of us? What is still doctors who won't take Obamacare patients? I talked not too long ago with someone who is not only a friend of mine, but an in demand speaker worldwide on the topic of healthcare. He is a healthcare futurist, Joe Flower. His lectures, advice, and wisdom are on his website, imaginewhatif.com. So I've pulled out bits of our conversation that cover not only bits of politics around this, but some very specific advice on expensive and, as it turns out, not necessarily helpful, but standard screening tests. Now, that includes, by the way, some stuff that's less than appetizing, so put your munchies aside if that's relevant to you and you're sensitive. But do listen and learn. This is stuff you're going to want to discuss with your doctor, at least until all tests get covered for everybody. If you had to pick the top three things about healthcare that we need to fix today, what would those top three things be? It is, it is hard to choose. But I would say, first of all, there's no reason we can't make sure that everyone is taken care of one way or another. Uh, the second thing is to change the way we actually pay for health care from a fee-for-service in which you as a doctor or you as a hospital get paid for individual things you do, mm -hmm. and it will drive out a huge amount of waste and stupid stuff. Those would help a lot with number three, which is pay a lot more attention to how we can take care of people who have pre-existing conditions, that have chronic conditions that have failing health because of age or have diabetes, heart disease, um, have AIDS, have Alzheimer's, all these kinds of things that actually can be mitigated, can be made to cost the system a lot less, at the same time that we are helping people actually feel better and spend less time in the hospital, have fewer operations, huge savings and better quality of life at the same time in those areas. I think a lot of people would find point one and point three to be inconsistent with each other. You can either take care of everyone or especially people with chronic diseases, cover everybody or you can have a monetarily efficient system. You have to pay for it one way or another. Either not enough people get taken care of, or you pay and pay and pay. 
That's wrong for two reasons. We overtreat and we undertreat. If you ask uh, doctors about their own field, if you ask pediatricians, if you ask uh, orthopods, uh, how much of what other doctors in your field do is actually not necessary, mm -hmm. not helpful, actually hurts the patient more than helps them, they would say 20%. The doctors would say that. Uh -huh. Outside estimates, there have been all kinds of studies, how much of healthcare in general is doing things we don't need to do that are not helpful, that are not the most efficient way to get to whatever outcome is we're going for. Those estimates, they typically uh, cluster around 33%, a third of everything we do. There is a PricewaterhouseCoopers estimate from a few years back that was very, very thorough, very deep study, and they came up with 55%. Good Lord. Now, how much is that? The estimates differ by hundreds of billions of dollars because that's how big it is. Mm -hmm. But this year, the best estimate is we're going to spend $3.7 trillion. That, that's the whole system. That's the, whole, that's the system from which the 50% is wasted of that? Yes. Okay. Very conservatively, we can say that we waste in U.S. healthcare, there's public and private, all the different ways of paying for it, we waste well over a trillion dollars a year doing things that don't need to be done, over-treatment. Why does a doctor over-treat? Is it to make the patient feel more secure that everything is being done? Are they afraid of being sued? Why do they do that? They do it for lots of reasons. Those are some of them. I'll give you one little example, though. Uh, we pay people per thing they do. Uh, for instance, colonoscopies. This is a fun thing to talk about on the radio, getting something stuck up your... <clears throat> <laughs> Anyone eating lunch, put it down so, now. Yeah, just... <laughs> but is this necessary? Most, <laughs> most colonoscopies, the, the most common use of colonoscopies is a first line of screening uh -huh. for colon cancer. They go in there and they look for polyps and they snip them off and this kind of thing. Kaiser, of which I'm a 45-year member, does not do that. Why? Well, because it's been found to actually not be that helpful. Really? Not for screening? It's not helpful? Not for screening. There are much cheaper ways of... Kaiser sends me a little poop test in the mail. For the first line of screening, that is, what it, that is actually the gold standard. Wow. But... You know, we have in the whole medical society and such, we, we have this other way of doing it. The gastroenterologists don't get paid to do a poop test. Now, maybe some part, you know, the, the laboratory, Kaiser is an integrated system. So the laboratory is part of the same system as the gastroenterologist. The gastroenterologist does not get paid anymore if he or she does more. Do you think, I mean, is that a deliberate thought process? Or is that something that... Well, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's how you make your living. Uh-huh. It's like you're, uh, you know, if you were an interventional cardiologist, uh, you're, uh, you may not think of it in these words, mm -hmm. but what you are really, what you go to work every day to do is you're a stent putter in her. You're the person who puts in stents in people. And the more stents you put in, the more money you make. And that's, that's your job. And it's not really, uh, doesn't enter into the conversation as much as it might, how appropriate, necessary this is. Mm -hmm. Now, gastroenterologists. Okay, so that actual test is, is not necessary the way we most commonly do it. 
they also involve typically an anesthesiologist, that is an MD who does anesthesia. Is this really necessary? It will cost on average $400 more per test uh, for them to involve an, uh, an anesthesiologist as opposed to say a nurse anesthetist who is trained as part of the gastroenterologist team to do the procedure. It turns out the anesthesiologist is not necessary. Why do they use them? You will never find this out by reading the literature. You'll find it out by asking people. Mm -hmm. And I have spent 40 years in the healthcare business asking people. So a few years back, after a RAND Corporation study came out about this exact procedure and the, the use of anesthesiologists and all this sort of stuff, I found myself at a, at a reception a cocktail party the night before I was to give the big opening talk at some uh, one of these medical things that I that's what I do. Right. And I find the reception the night before to be the most educational part of the whole program <laughs> because I have all these experts there and I can ask them. And I discovered I was talking to like five gastroenterologists. I asked them this question. I said, so you guys do colonoscopies as screenings? Uh, yeah. Do you use an anesthesiologist or do you rely on a nurse anesthetist? Oh, we all use anesthesiologists, right? Yeah, yeah, we all do. Why? Is it because the anesthesiologist is a, like a buddy and you're trying to throw him more business? No, no, not at all. Why do you do it? Because, this one guy piped up, if I employ an anesthesiologist, I could do three an hour if I just use a nurse anesthetist, I could do two an hour. I'm like, what, what? Aren't they doing the Is same work? Is she slower? <sighs> no, she's not slower, but I'm in charge. I'm an MD, so I'm in charge of the procedure, and the nurse anesthetist works for me. If I have an anesthesiologist, I don't have to think about the, the anesthesia. I just let him or her do their job, and I do my job. And I ju we just move through it very efficiently. I don't have to check up on the anesthesiologist. Therefore, because they're getting paid fee-for-service, if they can do three an hour instead of two an hour, they increase their, what they're earning right. by 50%. So, as individual consumers, can we now go to a doctor and say, look, I know you want me to have a colonoscopy. I know they're going to use an, an, an anesthesiologist. I want to do a poop test. And if you insist on a colonoscopy, I want a nurse anesthetist. Does that work? Um, I think it would depend on the doctor and on the system. Also, in, it depends on what your copay is and such, whether that would actually make a difference to you. I mean, if you're paying a 20% copay, then that extra $400 is $80 to you. Right. Uh, or if, you're, if you have a uh, co-insurance of a certain percentage. And people need to insist on these things. One of the things that's true across healthcare is that often, even if you do insist on it, even if they do agree to it, it is not uncommon that they will do it anyway and charge you for it. This is, this is a problem. There's a great deal of this. And... If there are extreme situations. This is not common, but it is common enough that there are consultants that instruct doctors how to do it. We have this situation where you are going to pay vastly more for somebody who is out of network than somebody who is in network. 
And you may even be in a situation where you're going to have an operation or a procedure, something like that, and you are going to make sure that everybody involved is in network so that your insurance is paying for it. Right. There are consultants who go around and give seminars to physicians how to sneak in somebody who is out of network that is in their practice so that they can charge many times more. What happened to first do no harm? I mean, it means your pocketbook too, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, if we get into morality, we might spend the rest of the hour there, but <laughs> I, I guess I just don't understand how yeah. a physician of conscience would even take that advice or want to hear that advice. Well, Maybe I'm naive. A physician of conscience. Uh, most doctors uh, are, most doctors really want to be doctors. Most doctors and nurses really want to heal people. That's what they're there for. And they're just trying to make a living. Some percentage of doctors actively pursue ways to make more money at their practice. And many of them will give the excuse that it has become harder and harder for a doctor to make a living these days. The, that's why more and more, doc, more and more doctors are becoming employed by larger institutions, larger chains and such, because it is harder. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you one little example. We have huge data demands on doctors these days that have only grown as we get more and more into the digital age. The average doctor, if you look at the practices and stuff that have many doctors, how many people are engaged in the practice of just the data management? It's approximately one FTE, full-time equivalent per doctor. So if you're a doctor, you're employing somebody at an average of an $80,000 a year salary just to deal with your data, your insurance claims, all the stuff that you have to enter into the system and make sure that it's right and, and run the data clean per doctor. So it is tough mm -hmm. for doctors. And part of the way we would fix healthcare is make it a lot easier to be a doctor, to make a living as a doctor, for instance, give everybody free medical education so they don't come out of, out of medical school with a $200,000, $300,000 debt just to start off with. You were saying something about one extra point on mammograms we got to get to. Right. Women in America uh, believe, because they have been told for decades, that getting a mammogram is the way to uh, make sure that they prevent or catch uh, breast cancer in its early stages. Okay. Has anyone ever actually tested that? Not in the U.S. In Canada, they did. Big test. Went on for 25 years. In fact, I think that was just a preliminary report. They're still going on with it. Mm -hmm. And the test latest count was 89,000 women divided in two categories where uh, all the women, you know, Canada, they have uh, health care for everybody. So and all the women uh, get a annual physical exam and are physically examined by the doctor. And they also taught every time how to examine their own breasts. Right. OK, they all get that. Half of them got mammograms. In addition, after 25 years, over 89,000 women, the difference in uh, morbidity rates, that is how many got cancer and mortality rates, how many died of cancer, were statistically insignificant. Wow. Having a mammogram made no difference at all. But I remember in many of the, I've done the healthy communities work and uh -huh. population health work. And um, uh, there, there's a big piece of that work about teaching women how to, how to examine themselves and, and giving out that information. And in many poorer communities that may not have 
a strong connection with the healthcare system, then they, they give it out in, in beauty parlors and they give it out in parishes and churches and, and uh, other places where women can be, can be gathered to learn health things. Healthcare futurist Joe Flower. More with him around the corner. This is the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the broadcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Carr. One more show ahead of me as your host and Brad and Desi come home to their microphones. We're in the midst of a conversation with healthcare futurist Joe Flower. Here's more. We're going to talk about pharmaceuticals. Okay. <laughs> drugs, more drugs. Let's do that. Yeah. There's the forbidden research <laughs> on the forbidden meds. At least here, you know, we're close to Stanford here. And there's so much research going on with what used to be just club drugs, ketamine, ecstasy, uh, yeah. LSD. Gee, they actually have some uses. They have uses, what a and there's, but they're still, uh, what do you call them, uh, Section 1 or Schedule five? 1. Schedule 1, thank yeah. you. Yeah, they're forbidden drugs. And I know that in some places it's hard to get research grants for this kind yeah. of thing. But now we're finally seeing cannabis, even though it's still not legal, even though the feds can still give you trouble about it. We're finally seeing people start to take cannabis and all its extracts and all its molecules right. seriously as a drug. Right. CBD, cannabidiol. Yeah. For instance, there is a, a drug being used in the UK. This is a person, a, a couple actually, that had a, a child who had epilepsy and they were in Colorado. And they uh, and the child was would have like you know, a, a major seizure sometimes every minute. I mean, it was just really drastically shortening his life and, and making life miserable for him. And they found that there was a test going on in the UK for a drug that maybe could solve this. And they, they managed to get permission to go to UK, got permission from the UK research uh, hospital to test it on their son, and his seizures went away. Wow. Disappeared. So they come back to the U.S. and they petitioned for, they managed to get, I think, some, some of this drug to take with them back to the U.S. so their kid would not go back into seizure land. But then they petitioned, you know, could somebody get this made illegal in the U.S.? Well, there's a problem. It was basically CBD oil. But eventually, uh, they were able to get, the FDA has approved a drug company to bring out the drug, now called Epidiolex. And if, if, that's actually spelled out on the, on, uh, in the YouTube channel. Epidiolex, and it is uh, now going to come out this fall. It's totally expected it's going to be approved uh, sometime in this, in this fall. And $32,500 per year. And... Probably because of all the background of this, their insurance probably won't cover it. Mm. You know, and you might say, well, why don't they just send away from some CBD oil? Because as far as I can discover, that's what it is. It's just CBD oil. 
And, of course, it's pharmaceutically pure and all this sort of stuff. Is it like a thousand times more pure than the stuff I get for $30? Who knows? Who knows? Which is the answer to <laughs> the answer to drug pricing. You talked to so many experts about why pharmaceuticals cost what they do. And ultimately, nobody really gets why. Nobody gets why that was $32,000 a year right. for this med right, as right. opposed to $60 a bottle for right. the med. Uh, I... Uh... I had the the because uh, because all these drug prices seem so weird and mm -hmm. you can end up paying more out of pocket for your copay for a drug when you could get the the you pay it totally for the whole drug for much less uh, over at Costco or at Walmart uh, and you you can end up paying uh, there there are new classes of drugs now which are really wonderful drugs. The first cures for cancer for of various kinds. The first cures for hep C, which is really amazing. Amazing. It's been, yeah, yeah. I had a friend who's cured of hep C now. Yeah. Who thought that was possible? It, it, these drugs are so useful. And uh, a friend of mine, Joey Tranquino, was the founder of the Hep C Foundation, uh, which got its start uh, right here in San Mateo County. Uh, when he was arrested for distributing clean needles to to junkies in the street, and he took that to court, and uh, I mean they took him to court, right? But he got uh, Tony Serra, the famous activist lawyer, to represent him and say, you know, wh how is this illegal? We're not facilitating their drug use. Mm -hmm. They're already taking the drugs. And they'll keep taking drugs, they'll whether you're there or drugs. not. We're facilitating them doing it in a way that will not kill them from other things. Mm -hmm. And the jury actually uh, tossed the case out. And the foreman of the jury came out on the steps of the courthouse. They had a, a, a press conference with the lawyer. And the foreman of the jury said, I'm going out on the streets tonight with Joey Tranquina, and we're going to give out free clean needles to the people sleeping under the bridges and under the trees because I believe in this cause. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of clean needle programs across the world to try to help people uh, live longer even though they were taking drugs. Now, I've, I've pursued this for many years, trying to figure out why the, the pursuit of these drugs is so expensive and so weird. We, I mentioned these new classes of drugs. The, the drugs, uh, the hep C drugs, are, they're typically an 8 to 12-week uh, series of pills you take. Right. So you can, you can price it by the entire bunch of pills you have to take. For the cheapest one in the United States, it's $26,400 is the, is the price. Others are at $75,000, $95,000. This is so expensive that many Medicaid programs across the country have had to go back to the legislatures and beg for more money just to cover these drugs. Mm. I'm not saying anything about whether that price is justified or not. I, I don't know. But that is an example of the high cost of drugs. And by the way, of course, the pharmaceutical companies would say, well, how much are you going to spend over the years treating that hep C patient and not curing them? It's going to be way more than 26000 or 75000 or $95,000, which is probably true. Mm -hmm. The cancer drugs, we now have cures for some kinds of cancer, which is pretty amazing. 
of the lowest cost of those is around $320,000. The highest cost is around $475,000 for what it would take to cure you. And again, how do we know that that's a justifiable price? The pharmaceutical companies will tell you that, well, one of the things they'll tell you is what I just said, you will spend more than that trying to treat this person and not curing them than you would curing them, which is for these particular kinds of things, probably true. Mm -hmm. Other thing I would say is we spend billions developing these drugs and we spend billions on, on you know, going down blind alleys and, and not finding the cure yet. So we need to put that on the price of drugs. We need to earn back the money from however many people we think will be our market. Joe Flower, you will find his work online with lots of free advice at imaginewhatif.com. Our whole conversation is online too, an hour-long interview at indeepradio.com slash podcasts. And that is it for today's broadcast. I will see you once again tomorrow. Until then, good luck, world. Good luck, world.